Welcome to Everything Yesterday This Morning, a 15 to 20 minute daily recap of headlines you may have missed. Come for the news, stay for the snarky commentary. Good morning and welcome to Friday's edition of Everything Yesterday This Morning. I am your host, literally Heather. A uh, little bit of a special arrangement today. My computer went on the fritz this morning when I was trying to record my show, so I'm actually recording remotely. I apologize for the poor quality in my voice if it does in fact sound bad. Um, I know you woke up this morning and said to yourself, oh my gosh, I cannot wait to hear the deals that Heather's going to tell me in the morning show today. So wait no more. Today's Palmetto State Armory deal is the PSA 300 Blackout AR-15 rifle, regular price $899.99, on sale this weekend for $599.99. And the Vortex Venom Red Dot, where you can save $100 this weekend and snag it for $249.99. The link for both of these is in the show description, but you should definitely check out all of the deals that PSA has for this Easter weekend. You will not be disappointed. On to heavier topics. I feel like Alex Jones today. I've got like all my papers here in front of me, so there's more noise than normal. I apologize. Um, On to heavier topics. A 450-page report on abuse within the Archdiocese of Baltimore revealed that more than 150 Catholic priests and others associated with the church sexually abused over 600 children and often escaped accountability over the course of 80 years, and accused church leaders of decades of cover-ups. The report paints a damning picture of the Archdiocese, which is the oldest Roman Catholic diocese in the country and spans much of Maryland. Some parishes, schools, and congregations had more than one abuser at the same time, including St. Mark Parish in Cantonsville, which had 11 abusers living and working there between 1964 and 2004. One deacon admitted to molesting over 100 children. Another priest was allowed to feign hepatitis treatments as a way to get out of any accountability um, and more excuses facing those allegations. The Maryland Attorney General's office released the findings of their years-long investigation during Holy Week, considered the most sacred time of year in Christianity ahead of Easter Sunday and said that the number of victims is far likely to be higher. The report was redacted to protect confidential grand jury materials, meaning that the identities of some of the accused clergy were removed. The staggering pervasiveness of the abuse itself underscores the culpability of the church hierarchy. The sheer number of abusers and victims, the depravity of the abuser's conduct, and the frequency with which the known abusers were given the opportunity to continue preying upon children are astonishing. Disclosure of the redacted findings marks a significant development in an ongoing legal battle over their release and adds to growing evidence from parishes across the country as numerous similar revelations have rocked the Catholic Church in recent years. Also on Wednesday, The state legislature passed a bill to end the statute of limitations on abuse-related civil lawsuits, sending it to Governor Wes Moore, who has said that he supports it. The Baltimore Archdiocese says it has paid more than $13.2 million for care and compensation for 301 abuse victims since the 1980s, including 
$6.8 million towards 105 voluntary settlements. The Baltimore Report says church leaders were focused on keeping abuse hidden, not on protecting victims or stopping the abuse. In some situations, victims ended up reporting abuse to priests who were abusive themselves. And when law enforcement did become aware of abuse allegations, police and prosecutors were often deferential and uninterested in probing what church leaders knew and when. The nearly 500-page document includes numerous instances of leaders taking steps to protect accused clergy, including allowing them to retire with financial support rather than to be ousted, letting them remain in the ministry and failing to report alleged abuse to law enforcement. Lawyers for the state asked a court for permission to release the report and a Baltimore Circuit Court judge ruled out last month that a redacted version should be made public. The court ordered the removal of the names and titles of 37 people accused of wrongdoing, whose names came out during the confidential grand jury proceedings, but will consider releasing a more complete version in the future. Lawmakers' passage of the bill to end the state's statute of limitations came after similar proposals had failed in recent years. Currently, victims of child sex abuse in Maryland cannot sue after they turn 38 years old. This bill would eliminate the age limit and allow for retroactive lawsuits. In a hilarious example of mission failure and ineptitude, members of the FBI and U.S. Army Special Operations Command, who were conducting a joint training exercise in downtown Boston, raided the wrong hotel room and detained the person inside before realizing their mistake. The FBI said its Boston division was helping the military with a training exercise around 10 p.m. on Tuesday to, quote, simulate a situation their personnel might encounter in a deployed environment. Based on inaccurate information, they were mistakenly sent to the wrong room and detained an individual, not the intended role player. The FBI said, The exercise was meant to enhance soldiers' skills to operate in realistic and unfamiliar environments, adding that the incident is under review. No one was injured. The incident took place at the Revere Hotel in Boston Common, and according to the Boston Police Department, uh, an incident report said that officers were called to the hotel around 12.20 a.m. and were met by law enforcement agents conducting a training exercise. Local news reports said the person who was in the hotel room and detained by federal law enforcement is a Delta Airlines pilot. Speaking of wrongful detention, uh, at least four undergraduate students at Harvard were held at gunpoint by campus police officers following a false police call about an armed individual in the campus dorms on Monday morning. The four seniors were asleep in their Leverett House dorm suite around 4 a.m. on Monday morning when loud banging on their door woke them up. Shortly after, at least five armed Harvard University police officers entered the suite, pointed their rifles at the students, and instructed them to exit their rooms with their hands raised. Quote, We were all extremely scared, particularly because my roommates and I are black students who have been bombarded our whole lives with stories and images portraying how situations such as this had ended up terribly. This was Jarrah Cotton, 
Um, we felt our lives are, were in danger. We are traumatized. In a statement after the incident, HEPD Chief Victor Clay confirmed they received three calls over the course of nearly an hour from a male who said he had a female hostage he had attempted to fatally injure, but clarified that the hostage was still alive. The caller stated that he had been a student at Harvard this semester, but had been, quote, kicked out. Clay also added that the caller had detailed information on how the dormitories are referenced by community members. By the third time he called, the caller said he was armed. He first threatened to shoot law enforcement who entered the room and then later threatened to leave the room and that he would start shooting as he did so. The false police call was an apparent swatting incident, a type of harassment that deliberately calls for police officers, often SWAT teams, to respond to fabricated dangerous situations. In Massachusetts, where Harvard is located, 28 communities have reported swatting calls since the mass shooting in Nashville, Tennessee last month. That's a lot, but anyway. Uh, Secretary of State Antony Blinken wants to reschedule his date with China. Beijing, however, is giving him the cold shoulder. Imagine getting ghosted by an entire ass country. The Biden administration called off Blinken's planned trip to Beijing in February after a Chinese spy balloon traversed U.S. skies, but has since been trying to restart high-level talks. This includes rescheduling the Blinken visit and setting up other trips by top U.S. officials and a phone call between President Joe Biden and Chinese leader Xi Jinping. <clears throat> but China is rebuffing the United States efforts, the people said, and its willingness to fully engage may hinge on the drama around Wednesday's meeting in California by, uh, between Taiwanese President Tsai Ing-wen and Republican House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. Beijing's current aversion to sustained high-level engagement underscores the particularly fraught nature of U.S.-Chinese relations over the past few months. What was a two-sided desire to stabilize an increasingly volatile relationship is becoming much more about Washington reaching out and the Chinese government demurring. Beijing is increasingly resentful about U.S. arms sales to Taiwan and official contacts that China says encourage Taiwan's pro-independence elements. The United States has its own limits on engagement, with the scuttled Blinken trip as a prime example, but the U.S. officials called that decision a postponement and have stressed the United States isn't cutting off relations with China. Beijing, however, is pointing to the upcoming Tsai-McCarthy meeting as an unacceptable escalation. The meeting undermines China's sovereignty and territorial integrity. Chinese Foreign Affairs spokesperson Mao Ning said Tuesday, the speed and enthusiasm with which China re-engages on a high level with American officials could depend on how McCarthy and Tsai present their meeting to the world. If the Tsai-McCarthy visit comes across as too formal and elaborate, Casting Tsai in a head-of-state role that China denies exists, Beijing could further extend its freeze-out of high-level U.S. representatives. The snubs have been accumulating as tensions spiked in early February over the spy balloon showdown. Chinese officials declined a U.S. request to have Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin speak with his counterpart. And bilateral military crisis communications remain hamstrung. 
due to what senior administration officials say is Beijing's refusal to engage with the United States on the development of reliable systems that could help prevent an incident in the South China Sea from spiraling into a military crisis. Artificial intelligence is having a cultural moment. AI-powered chatbots like ChatGPT and their visual image-creating counterparts like DAL-E have been in the news lately for fear that they could replace human jobs. Such AI tools work by scraping the data from millions of texts and pictures, refashioning new works by remixing existing ones in intelligent ways that make them seem almost human. Yet, another albeit lesser known AI-driven database is scraping images from millions and millions of people and for less scrupulous means. Meet Clearview AI, a tech company that specializes in facial recognition services. Clearview AI markets its facial recognition database to law enforcement to investigate crimes, enhance public safety, and provide justice to victims, according to their website. Revelations as to how the company obtains the images for their database of nearly 30 billion photos have caused an uproar. Last week, CEO Hon Tan That said that in an interview with BBC that the company obtained its photos without users' knowledge, scraped from social media platforms like Facebook, and provided them to U.S. law enforcement. The CEO said that the database has been used by American law police nearly a million times since 2017. Tantat said that the database of images was, quote, lawfully collected just like any other search engine like Google. Notably, lawful does not in this context imply that the users whose photos were scraped gave consent. Clearview AI's database is used for after-the-crime investigations by law enforcement and is not available to the general public, the CEO said. Every photo in the data set is a potential clue that could save a life, provide justice to an innocent victim, prevent a wrongful identification, or exonerate an innocent person. Clearview AI has faced millions of dollars in fines for breaches of privacy in Europe and Australia. And in the BBC interview, Miami police confirmed that it uses this software and treats it as a tip for investigations for all crimes and that it has helped solve some murders. The Electronic Frontier Foundation has described facial recognition technology as a growing menace to racial justice privacy, free speech, and information security. In 2022, the organization praised the multiple lawsuits it faced. One of its worst offenders is Clearview AI, which extracts face prints from billions of people without their consent and uses these face prints to help police identify suspects. For example, police in Miami worked with Clearview to identify participants in a black-led protest against police violence. Meta owners of Facebook told Insider recently that the scraping by Clearview invades people's privacy. Meta said that they banned their founder from our services and sent them a legal demand to stop, oops, sorry, gotta change pages, accessing any data, photos, or videos from our services. Matthew Gariglia, I think is how you say his name, a senior policy analyst for the international digital rights nonprofit 
told Insider that it is not merely Facebook is a cause for concern. It's the web in general. I think that's one of the nefarious things about it because you might be very aware of what Clearview does and so prevent any of your social media profiles from being crawled by Google to make sure that the picture you post isn't publicly accessible on the open web. And you think this might keep me safe. But the thing about Clearview is it recognizes pictures of you anywhere on the internet. In a Tuesday night move, Twitter designated NPR's main account as quote, state affiliated media leading to an outcry over how the label undermines the independent news outlet. It was not immediately clear why Twitter added the state-affiliated media to NPR's account. I'm I'm sure that's not immediately clear since they are pretty much state-affiliated media, but NPR spokesperson Isabel Lara said the company was not warned, noting that it happened quite suddenly. On Wednesday, NPR maintained that the nonprofit media company operates independently of the U.S. government. And NPR CEO John Lansing called Twitter's move unacceptable. NPR stands for freedom of speech and holding the powerful accountable. That's why Corinne Jean-Pierre came out and praised NPR and how great they are and how fabulous their coverage is because they're totally independent and they hold the government accountable. Right. It is unacceptable for Twitter to label us this way. A vigorous, vibrant free press is essential to the health of our democracy, Lansing said. According to the news outlet, NPR officials have asked Twitter to remove the label. The state-affiliated media tag was still on the news organization's main account as of this morning. NPR receives government funding through grants from federal agencies and departments, but says that it accounts for less than 1% of NPR's annual budget, the company said. This is completely and patently false. You can go out. They have to disclose where their money comes from. Uh, The Corporation for Public Broadcasting similarly similarly receives federal funding, but it was not yet given the state-affiliated media on its Twitter account as of Thursday morning. NPR receives federal appropriations from Congress. $465 million in 2022 and $445 million in 2021, including an additional $175 million from the American Rescue Plan Act. In other words, state-funded media. Self-proclaimed whistleblower Rebecca Jones is in the news again. Shocker, it's for once again lying. She tweeted out, quote, My family is not safe. My son has been taken on the governor's orders, and I've had to send my husband and daughter out of state for their safety. This is the reality of living in DeSantis' Florida. There is no freedom here, only retaliatory rule by a fascist who wishes to be king. Jones goes further to suggest that someone claiming to be a cousin of one of her son's classmates joined his private Snapchat group and that the person recorded the conversations and reported them to the police after her son shared a popular meme criticizing police. But it was a bit worse than that, wasn't it, Rebecca? The Santa Rosa Sheriff's alleged office alleged that the 13-year-old made repeated threats to shoot up Holly Navarre Middle School and to stab students who angered him. Investigators interviewed multiple students 
who spoke with her son, as well as those who saw messages he posted on social media. In the messages to his friends, he made the following statements, among others, quote, I want to shoot up the school. If I get a gun, I'm going to shoot up HNMS, lol. I'm going to get a wrath and natural selection shirt, so maybe, but I don't think many people know what the Columbine shooters look like. Okay, so it's been like three to four weeks since I got my on my new antidepressants, and they aren't working, but they're supposed to by now. So I have no hope in getting better, so why not kill the losers at school? He told one of his friends that he planned to shoot up the school the Thursday before spring break, but there were too many things going on, so he postponed it until March 31st. The students reported the claims to the school prior to the date, and the investigation was launched. He was also homeschooled at the time of the alleged threats. Santa Rosa Sheriff's Office investigators called Rebecca Jones, who said the family was vacationing in Mississippi but would call investigators when she returned. During the interview, Rebecca confirmed there are no guns in the resident and only weapons, the only weapons were kitchen knives, which she has stored in a locked box. It sounds like there's been threats of violence in this household before if knives are in a locked box. There is footage of Rebecca taking her son to the sheriff's office to turn him in herself, not taken on the governor's orders, as she suggested. Her son was placed on in-home detention release with a monitor. The judge prohibited him from possessing any weapons or firearms, utilizing the internet for anything other than school purposes, and from having contact with anyone from the middle school. Classified war documents detailing secret U.S. and NATO plans for building up the Ukrainian military before a planned offensive against Russia were posted this week on social media channels. The Pentagon is investigating who may have been behind the leak of the documents, which appears on Twitter and on Telegram, a platform with more than half a billion users that is widely available in Russia. Pay very close attention to that language because that's going to be important here in a little bit. Military analysts said the documents appear to have been modified in certain parts from their original format, overstating United States estimates of Ukrainian war dead and underestimating estimates of Russian troops killed. The modifications could point to an effort of disinformation by Moscow. But the disclosures in the original documents, which appear as photographs of charts and of anticipated weapons deliveries, troop and battalion strengths, and other plans, represents a significant breach of U.S. intelligence in the effort to aid Ukraine. Biden officials were working to get them deleted, but had not, as of Thursday evening, succeeded. We are aware of the reports of social media posts, and the department is reviewing the matter, said Sabrina Singh, the deputy press secretary at the Pentagon. The documents do not provide specific battle plans like how, when, and where Ukraine intends to launch its offensive, which U.S. officials say is likely coming in the next month or so. And because the documents are five weeks old, they offer a snapshot of time, the American and Ukrainian view as of March 1st, of what Ukrainian troops might need for this particular campaign. 
to the trained eye of a Russian war planner, field general, or intelligence analyst, however, the documents no doubt offer many tantalizing clues. The documents mention, for instance, the expenditure rate of high-mobility artillery rocket systems, or HIMARS, which can launch attacks against targets like ammunition dumps, infrastructure, and concentration of troops from a distance. The Pentagon has not said publicly how fast Ukrainian troops are using the HIMARS munitions. The documents do. Analysts said Friday that it would be difficult to assess the impact of the documents' disclosure on the frontline fighting now and in the coming months. Russia's own recent offensive has struggled to make gains in eastern Ukraine and Western analysts debate whether the Russian military, after suffering staggering casualties, is capable of mounting another or resisting a Ukrainian attack. It was unclear how the documents ended up on social media, but pro-Russian government channels have been sharing and circulating the briefing slides. The analysts warned that documents released by Russian sources could be selectively altered to prevent present the Kremlin's disinformation. Quote, whether these documents are authentic or not, people should take care with anything released by Russian sources, said Michael Kaufman, the director of Russian studies at CNA, a research institute in Arlington, Virginia. This screams two things to me. One, that it's okay when the leaks are what they want you to know and not so much when they don't. The second is that this sounds eerily as if it's a precursor to justify the Restrict Act. I cannot stress enough how important it is to get on the phone with your respective congressional members and politely and vehemently oppose this legislation. I will be doing a special edition drop this weekend covering the Restrict Act in more detail as I have read the legislation myself and it has nothing to do with TikTok and frankly, very little to do with China. Everything to do with you and me losing what finite amount of liberty and privacy we have left. That is your Friday edition of everything yesterday this morning. I will be live for Liberty Happy Hour this evening on Twitter Spaces. You are welcome to join us at 1015 Eastern Standard Time. Otherwise, I will see you guys on Monday. You guys take care. Have a great weekend. If you like today's show, be sure to subscribe and turn on notifications so you never miss an episode. Also, please don't forget to check out shouseinthehouse.com and never forget that free men do not need permission from any government. Have a great day.